Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, like Sam said, my name is Jason. I am the next generation pastor here, which means I get to hang out with everybody from the little babies all the way through our student ministry here at Northside. And every once in a while, they asked me to come teach everyone, and I'm really honored that they did that. I'm happy home, happy, how do you say that? Happy Harvest Homecoming Week. That threw me off too many ages. Uh, good to see you guys. Happy um, Paul Break. For those of you who are in school, hopefully you are enjoying that. And we are going through a series called Multiplication Tables. And if you are in Fall Break, if you are a student, you're like, oh, please tell me we're not talking about math here. Um, and we are not. We're talking about, we're looking through the book of John and specifically how in the book of John, he spends about one-third of his account with Jesus. One-third of the Gospel of John is about this conversation, the Last Supper, which happens at a table with Jesus and his disciples. And it was so powerful that when, when people asked John to write about his experience with Jesus, he spent so much time talking about this conversation. And it makes sense because I think all of us, how many of us have had a meaningful, life-altering conversation around a table at some point in your life? Okay, perfect. And some of those, as I think about them, some of those are great conversations. Like for me, I remember when I first graduated college, I sat at a table and I sat across from an HR director and he offered me a job. It was a life-altering thing that happened right after college. Great things happen around a table, but there's also some painful things that happen around a table. Maybe you have family conversations that have brought up around a table that have been life-altering in not a good way. Um, I was at a coffee shop the other day working. Um, I tend, I'm not proud of this, um, but I tend to people watch a little bit. Um, does anyone else people watch? All right, be careful. These, are, these people will be watching you. Um, but I was at a, uh, I was watching people and I saw this guy and whenever you see people, if you're like me, you start like filling in stories. You're like, oh, I know what's happening with this guy. And so he's sitting there and he was like nervous, kind of dressed up a little bit. And I'm like, oh, I think I know what's going on here. He's sitting by himself. And sure enough, a lady walks in. I'm like, I have, I have like a front row view of a Match.com moment. And I was so excited. They came, they kind of had an embrace. They grabbed a drink. They came back to sit down. And so I'm, I'm like, man, this is pretty awesome. I want to like read some body language here. Um, and what I realized pretty quickly was this wasn't a first date. This was a last date. <laughs> this was him being nervous because he had to bring some things up. So I put in my headphones and be like, I don't want to hear any of this. I don't, I want to just be, but I couldn't help but watch. And you know, he's like, and then I see her and she's like, And she's like, <laughs> so it was a very short, uh, to the point, last date. And there was part of me when he, we kind of was like, do not look at him, don't make eye contact. But I also was like, is he crying? What's happening? <laughs> and we kind of make eye contact, and he's like, looks at me, and I'm like, how dare you? Um, <laughs> no, not really. I actually was kind of, this is weird, but I was kind of proud of him. I'm like, Way to not text that, bro. Like, way to have a conversation. Um, but so there's conversations that happen around a table that are monumental, that are powerful, that are awesome. And there's also some that are really tough. And then there's some that are both. Have you ever had one of those? Um, one of the most powerful conversations in my life, I think, was a conversation that was kind of at a table. If I'm really honest, it was more like a tray. And it was with my grandfather who knew that his time on earth was ending. And 
He was blessed that his mind was still there. He was blessed that he knew that that time was coming, and he had an opportunity with all of his grandkids, with all of his kids, to sit down with them knee to knee. So I got to sit down with my grandfather and have this moment where he spoke truth over me, where he encouraged me. And if I were to talk about my grandfather, who I grew up about 30 minutes away from, he lived on a farm, I could tell you so many stories. Um, I worked every summer with him on the farm. He taught me a lot about work ethic. Um, he was an American hero. He got a Purple Heart in World War II, fighting in Germany. I could tell you so many cool stories about my grandfather. But if we talked for 10 minutes, I guarantee you at least three minutes of that will be that conversation that we had at his, on, at his, on his bed with the tray. And what I mentioned that is I think when John was writing this, his gospel, when he's writing his account of his time with Jesus, and he's looking, I think the reason why this was so powerful is because it was a mix of both. He's being sent out. He's being told, like Nate talked about last week, that they are about to see even greater things than they had seen with Jesus. They were going to play a part in it, that these, at this point, 11 disciples were going to go out into the world and that they were going to watch God work in them and watch God work through them in amazing, powerful ways. And at the same time, it was a conversation for his disciples where they were going, things are about to look a lot different. And we're still going to be walking with Jesus, but it won't be in flesh. And so what we're looking at today, I'm so excited as we're diving through this series. And what I'm really excited about today is there is a spiritual truth that I think Jesus wanted for his disciples to see. He wants for us to see. And even though I grew up listening to all of the stories in church from when I was a little tiny kid, I didn't grasp what we were talking about today until my late 20s. And it has changed the way that I interact with God. And I'm so excited and I'm prayerful that God can meet us and connect with us the way that he's connected with me through this passage. And so we're going to look in John chapter 15, and it starts off, Jesus comes right out of the gate, and he says this, I am the true vine. I am the true vine, a short sentence that is packing so much theological truth in it. I wish I could talk the entire sermon about what he said. What he just said when he said, I am the true vine, when we hear that now in the 21st century in the United States, we don't really grasp what that means. What he is saying there is an incredibly scandalous statement. He's saying, I am the true vine. Why was it scandalous? Because in the Old Testament, that, that image of a vine was used quite a bit. But it was used with Israel. It said Israel is a vine. That we're going to take Israel from under captivity in Egypt and we're going to give them their own country so that they flourish and they can become a vine which produces fruit that is pleasing to God. And we're going to have a covenant together where I take care of you and you honor me. The only thing is that the after they mention it for the first time in Psalm 80, if you want to do studies on this, you can write this down. Uh, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 15, Ezekiel 17, they talk about the vine never living up to what it was supposed to be. So when it was talking about the vine, it was always this idea that Israel could not keep their end of the bargain. 
that they couldn't keep their end of the covenants with God, that they were always distracted, that their hearts were distracted by what the other people were doing. And so Jesus says to his disciples a very simple sentence, I am the true vine, and it packs so much theological statement. Here's why. is because Jesus was saying that he is what we could not be. Jesus is what we could not be, and that truth still remains. That our hearts are e easy to be tempted. Our hearts run after things of the world, and we can't live a life on our own that totally pleases a perfect God. And yet Jesus says, I am the true vine, and if you stick with me, you can have a relationship with God because I have done what you can't. Israel went into the desert for 40 years and they were disobedient of God. Jesus goes in the desert for 40 days and fast and he is obedient. He isn't tempted. Jesus is what we could not be. He is the true vine. And now here's the deal. I think the disciples that were there would have gone. Those 11 disciples would have gone. Yeah, I agree. I believe that. I believe that you're the true vine. That's why I'm still following you. I believe that. So what's next? And here's where it gets a little bit tough. If Jesus is the true vine and we are following him, we have to expect to be pruned. We have to expect to be pruned. A little bit of a curveball. Jesus is the true vine. I believe that. And if I believe that, that means I am, need to be expected to be pruned. Keep going in John, John 15, verse 1. He says this. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. The fact is, uh, the fact is if we are a believer of Jesus, the Bible says that there should be fruit in our lives. That if we're connected to the vine, we should be producing fruit in our lives. And now here's what you have to answer then is what does that fruit look like? And I think even the Pharisees of Jesus' day would have said, I, I believe that. There should be some good fruit. And they would have said, and that fruit is doing a bunch of religious things. Praying, fasting, memorizing the Bible, memorizing the, and things that were on the uh, that, that are good, but on, that they would said that is the goal, is to keep doing those things. And that on the outside, they would look very pretty, but maybe on the inside, their hearts were not connected to the true vine. And what the Bible says, it's, it has not near as much to do, the fruit is it's different. And this is what it says in Galatians 5, 22. It says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Got two of those backwards. Um, I learned a song when I was a little kid. Did anyone ever learn the Fruits of the Spirit song? Anyone else? You remember this. It was like this super cheesy song now that we look at it. But it reminded me of that, what that was. And it was like, the fruit of the Spirit's not a, fashion, a passion fruit. Mwah. And then it was like, what is the fruit of the Spirit? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, good. And it reminded me. So I grew up knowing that that was the fruit of the Spirit from a young age. But here's what I always thought. And I don't know if it was taught this way or just my background made me think it was this way. When I would see that those were the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, what I would always think was that was like a checklist of things that I needed to do better. And so I would grew up thinking, I need 
to be better at loving. I need to be more joyous. I need to be more gentle. And I would use pure willpower to try to make that happen. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever tried to willpower peace? <laughs> Just white knuckle joy? <laughs> that's hard to do. I would say that's impossible to do. These things happen when our heart is changing and our heart is moving. So we should have fruit, and that fruit comes from being connected with the vine. And so if we're connected with the vine, we need to be pruned because if that's happening in our heart, God, because he loves us, he loves us just like we are, but he loves us enough to never keep us there. He's going to constantly see those things in our hearts that aren't pleasing to him, and in a loving, patient way, he's going to bring those up and he's going to change our heart. Um, I was watching a TV show. Um, it, it, not the most uplifting TV show I've ever watched. Uh, it was a show, it used to be, it used to be, I don't think they aired it or they don't film it anymore, but they still show like marathons. It's a TV show called Hoarders. Anyone seen that? Yeah, not a real life giving show. Um, and now they do these marathons where you're just like, oh my gosh, well, I'm like in this. Now, here's what I didn't know. And this is a huge problem in America. Um, psychologists say anywhere between 10 to 15 Americans struggle with clinical hoarding, excessive hoarding, where they just hold on to their possessions and they can't let go. And it gets to a point where it harms them physically, it harms their family physically, it harms their friends physically, or just it creates a divide where people don't want to go there anymore. And it hurts them if sometimes animals get involved and it just creates an unhealthy environment. And what ends up happening, a couple things happen. Something happens where the person who is struggling this gets to a point where they have to change. They have to. The city says, I'm going to take you out of your house. One of their family members gets hurt. Their family quits coming, and finally they get to a point where they have to address it. And I've realized a lot of times in my life, a lot of times things don't change until the pain of staying the same outweighs the pain of changing. And I'm watching them, and they get to this point where they finally have to change, and here's how it happens. It doesn't happen by people going in their house and go, clean this up, clean this up, just clean it. If they could have done that, they already would have. So what happens? They bring in a counselor, they bring in someone who's trained, and they say, hey, you're worthy of health. You're worthy of relationship. You're worthy of connection with your family. You're worthy of it. And this stuff is making that difficult. And it starts in their heart when they can finally realize I'm worthy of health, I'm worthy of connection, I'm worthy of relationship. And then when they get to the point where they say, okay, I'm ready, for, I, I know I need it, I'm ready to be changed. They say, okay, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to bring in some friends and we're going to do this for you. We're going to remove these things that are painful to you. 
And it starts this process. And if you've ever watched the show, it's never like easy. The person that's living there is never like, take it all. I'm just going to sit back and just take it all. It becomes like a fight where the people go, okay, we're going to take this box now. And they go, wait, 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 what is that? Please don't take it. And you're watching it on your TV and you're like, let them take the box. Let them take it. It's hurting you. It's hurting your family. We can see it clearly. You cannot. Let them take it, please. And it becomes this battle of them saying, I'm going to release this. And then the people who care about them taking it out, taking out the things that are painful and replacing it with things that are life-giving. And I'm watching this show and I'm going, that is the Christian life. That's our hearts. We maybe have accepted that Jesus is Lord, and yet there's still things in our hearts that until the time we, from the time we accept Christ until the time that we leave this earth, there will be a battle and there will be something happening in our hearts where God, because he loves us, will send his spirit inside of our hearts and go, this is not good for you. This is not pleasing to God. This is hurting your relationships with other people. And because I love you, I want you to get to a point where you realize you have to let go of this. You have to let go of this resentment. You have to let go of this peace. You have to let go of this chaos. And I'm not just going to say to just get rid of it. I'm going to replace that with peace. I'm going to replace that with joy. That's the Christian life. And if we are believed that Jesus is the true vine, that he's the one that has done what we cannot do, we have to expect to be pruned. And I just have to say that pruning process is not an easy process. It hasn't been in my life. Now, when I look back on it, I go, I'm so grateful for it. I'm so grateful that I went through it but it's not an easy process. I remember some of the toughest times of my life, one of the toughest moments of my life, freshman year of college. I grew up in Texas, a little town in Texas. I knew pretty much everybody at my high school. And then I went to Texas A&M University, uh, which had 45,000 uh, undergrads. And I know we had a big game against Kentucky. <laughs> and we won. Um, <laughs> my next door neighbor is a Kentucky fan, and he goes to this church, and I love him. And all game, we were like, it was a very close game. If you didn't watch it, for those of you who don't care, I'm sorry. But we played, it was very close. It went to overtime. And the whole game, we were, I was, we were just like made a pact. Don't text each other. <laughs> no trash talking. Um, and our, our high school pastor, Kyle, loves Kentucky. And I haven't even texted him yet um, because self-control and gentleness. Um, anyway, I go to A&M, 45,000 undergrads which is cool, except I knew zero. I knew none, which is a terrifying thing to walk onto a campus, especially when you leave a small town where you know pretty much everybody, then you show up 45,000 people your age, they all seem like they know somebody else, but I know zero. And not only that, I was something called over-assigned in my dorm, which meant there were not enough dorm rooms so they told me, don't even bring your stuff. Bring one suitcase. We're going to have a cot in a little dorm room with two other guys. You're going to sleep on the cot until another room opens up. So I'm like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. So I show up. I show up first. I'm the first one of my three roommates there. I bring my bag. I'm all excited. It's underneath my bed. I'm just sitting there. I'm like, I don't know anyone. So these two guys better be my best friends. And I'm just waiting for them. 
And then finally, a few hours later, they show up. They know each other. They went to the same high school. And I'm like, what's up, guys? I'm Jason. I'm from Rockwall, Texas. Where are you guys from? Let's be best friends. Let's hang out. And they were like, who are you? Small problem. No one told them they were having an over-assigned roommate. So they come up with all their bags and their parents, and they're like, who are you? I'm your over-assigned roommate. Don't worry. My stuff's under the cot. We're going to be great. This is going to be great. Eventually, I'll have my own room. But until then, let's be best friends. Let's hang out. And they were like, where's the RA? And I'm like, I don't know. So they left, came back and go, hey, man, we're going to go ahead and try to find something off campus. I'm just sitting in this dorm, like, Celine Dion just singing, like, all by myself. And I'm just like, <laughs> what is happening? And I just remember being like, this is brutal. And I was alone in that dorm room for about four weeks before they sent somebody else in there. And I knew nobody. And it was tough. And everything inside of me just wanted to call my parents and be like, come pick me up, please. But I also knew I needed to like prove myself. So I stuck around. And I just remember being like, going to class, knowing nobody, feeling just completely alone and showing up on Friday and Saturday nights in my dorm. And I remember it very distinctly because I really started walking with Jesus when I was about 16 years old. So it was only a couple years before. I remember thinking, maybe God is getting rid of everything so that I can see him in a new, unique way. And I remember reading the Gospels, maybe for really the first time, reading Matthew and just going through it. And I remember maybe day two getting to Matthew 6 where it says, do not worry. I'm taking care of the flowers. I'm taking care of the birds. And I got gotcha. you. And just trusting that even in that season of a loneliness that God had me. And he did. It's about two tough months. And by the end of my A&M career, I had some of my best friends that God provided. That season was tough, but God did something in my heart. I didn't get married until later in life. Walking with Jesus, working at churches, doing things that I felt like were honoring God, and that there was a desire to find someone to get married to, but it just wasn't happening. All my friends, it was happening. Got to a point where like, my, I was like doing weddings for my old high school kids. I'm like, how is it so easy for you guys? And it's so hard for me. And I just remember having these moments, and it wasn't often because, and, and the Bible says that singleness, and I'm, I didn't say this in the other services. This is just for y'all. The Bible says that singleness is a gift. I don't know if we treat it like one in the church. And I just want to say this for my single friends out there. You are a valuable member of this church. We need you here. We need your talents here. We need God has something for you. You are an extremely part. But I remember sitting in churches and feeling like that I was incomplete, that there was something that God still had to work on with me. And I just remember feeling like Celine Dion was singing to me again. <laughs> Why am I all by myself? And I remember the exact same conversation where it was like, maybe this is a season where God can show you where I'm we can, God, I can show you about myself in a way that won't be able to be that way. The Bible says that singleness is a gift. Why? Because we can have an undevoted, an undistraction, undistracted devotion towards Jesus. I don't think I always looked at that gift as a gift. It felt like a curse sometimes. In fact, I think a lot of us in seasons of pruning 
we are convinced that we've done something wrong and that God is mad at us and that we, are, that we have done something that is causing that when in reality he is engaging our hearts in a beautiful process where he is changing us to look more like him. If he is the true vine, we have to expect to be pruned. What else does it say? What's the second thing? Is that our position needs to be in his presence. Our position needs to be in his presence. Verses 3 and 4 say this. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Hit pause. That's huge. He's looking at his disciples and saying, already you're clean. You're clean with God because you have heard the word that I am the true vine. Keep going. If you want a circle of a sentence, this is a great one to circle. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear much fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but here's what I want you to see. There is a beautiful identity piece in this verse where he says, you are clean because you've heard the word. If we have accepted Jesus, that he is the true vine, that he is the one that we cannot be, if we've accepted that, we are clean. And then he says this, to abide in me as I abide in you. And this is why I think this is so monumental. Is his disciples who heard that were about two days away from not abiding in him. He says, abide in me as I abide in you. And they go, that sounds great. And then as soon as it gets tough, as soon as he gets arrested... They're like, we're out. And the Bible says they ran back and they started doing the things that they did before they even knew Jesus. They bailed on him. And yet he says, abide in me and I in you. Here's what I want you to see. If we've accepted the true vine, and maybe some of us have made decisions, because here's what we do when we think we've offended someone. What do we do? We avoid that person. If we think we've avoided, if someone has offended, if, if we think we've offended someone, or we think someone has offended us, the natural thing to do is to just avoid them. Some of you might be in this service because you're avoiding someone from a different service. It's a dark laughter. <laughs> we avoid them. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, he doesn't let that happen. He raises from the dead, and what does he do? He goes back to his disciples, the same guys who just bailed on him, and he goes, I'm abiding in you. You may think you have done something that has pushed you from the grace of God, and Jesus is saying, I'm abiding in you. You might think that you're not abiding in me, but I haven't given up on you. And my love and my grace is still pursuing you, and no one is too far from the grace of God. So maybe you're in here today, and this is the first time you've been in here in a while, or maybe you're in a season where you're kind of reinvestigating this, and maybe you need to hear that. Maybe you've made some decisions that make you feel like God is very distant, and I want you to see that he is abiding in you, that he's the true vine, and when we believe that, he's abiding in us. And we need to abide in him because of that. And these 11 guys who all bailed on Jesus, he goes and he makes things right. And when they realize that they are still worthy of his spirit, still worthy of his companionship, of his communion with Jesus, these 11 guys go out on a mission that has changed the history of the world and has changed my heart. 
Our position is in his presence. And the last thing that I think Jesus wants us to see, if we believe that he's the true vine, if we believe that he's enough, if we believe that he's done what what we could not do, and we are expecting pruning, and we believe that our position is in his presence, the last thing is this, and this is so powerful and I hope we get it, is that Jesus gives us the power to love. Jesus gives us the power to love. Verses 8 through 10 say this, By this my Father is glorified. How is our Father glorified? That you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. If you want to circle this sentence, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, here's the thing. This verse is very easy to misunderstand, and frankly, I think it gets taught wrong. What Jesus is not saying here is that if you obey my commandments, you prove you love me. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying, what the verse says, is abide in my love. If you abide in my love, you will keep my commandments. And that is a huge distinction. It's not obey my commandments and by doing so you show you love me. It's love me and by doing so the obeying will come naturally. And that is a huge difference because I don't know if you grew up in a church like I said that I did. I don't know if you've ever gotten into this cycle. Have you ever gotten this cycle where you feel like you need to prove how much you love God. And so you do things but your heart is not engaged. Your heart doesn't feel connected to the true vine. So you're doing and doing and yet your heart isn't changing. And then it makes you feel worse. Because you think, well, maybe I'm not loving God more, so I'm going to do even more. And your heart doesn't change. And then you feel bad. And you say, well, maybe I need to do more. And you go through this religious circle and this painful circle where you try to do and do and do and achieve. And your heart isn't engaged, and your heart is not abiding in his love for you. It's a huge difference, and it's one, like I said, that I didn't get until my late 20s, that Jesus doesn't care as much about my activity as he does my proximity. That Jesus cares more about where I am and where my heart is than what I'm doing. I've learned this a lot better since I have been married for the last 18 months. And people say, when you get about to get married, they all say, first year is your hardest year. If you can make it through that, you can make it through anything. Everyone says that. Your first year is your hardest year. Uh, I hope this was our hardest year because it was awesome. <laughs> it's been awesome. Now, partly, I mean, it partly is because we've done a, we just, we moved across the country. I took a job here. I bought a house. We, some, that's hilarious. I said I, by the way, because there are some things that are still tough for me. Um, I'll come back to that. Uh, we bought a house. We had a kid. It's been an awesome 18 months. But there have been some things that have come up, especially when you're older and you get married. You just kind of have some habits that are tough to break. Um, how do I say this? Uh, my mom used to do a lot of things for me. Uh, 
Yeah, I might just end it there. Uh, so there's just some things that I do that tend to annoy my wife. Um, so one of them is uh, laundry. I, I didn't even know how to do laundry. I, when I was a kid, laundry just happened. I just threw my dirty clothes, and then it was folded like two days later. I'm like, okay, I guess that's cool. And I go to college, and I'm like, why is there a huge mound? Where, what's happening? And then you're like, oh, I have to clean that myself. And then anyway, so luckily I learned how to use a washer and dryer because um, I'm an adult. But um, one thing I do, and maybe you guys do this too, is whenever you have dirty clothes, uh, I have like a hamper in the closet, in our closet. In the last service I said my because I'm still very selfish. Um, <laughs> it's our. It's our closet. And I have a hamper there that's very clearly for my dirty clothes. And yet what I do when I have dirty clothes is, I don't know if guys you're like me, but I kind of like Larry Bird it, you know, like, and just walk away. And if it goes in, awesome. If not, it's still dirty on the floor right by the hamper. And when it's time, I'll know. Uh, wife sometimes doesn't love that. Um, to walk into the closet and have to avoid dirty t-shirts and socks. And so she'll in a loving way. Hey, uh, Jason, what is this? <laughs> Which, guys, that is like a trick question. Uh, she, she knows what it is. Um, oh, that's dirty laundry. I'm aware that it's dirty laundry. <laughs> um, why is it not in the hamper? Well, you know, I, it's close enough. It's like horseshoes. I still landed it like it's good. And she's like, uh, I'm going to need you to go ahead and get your own rebounds and put that thing in there. Um, and so, and by the way, I asked her if I could tell that story. And she was like, yeah, tell that story. Um, I have a few more if you want a few more illustrations. Uh, you do that coffee thing where you leave just that much in it and it makes it impossible to clean. You just pour that out. You can tell them that. And I'm like, I only need one example. Thank you. Um, good. But for the last 18 months, I have picked up my clothes and I put them in the hamper. Yes, I, I think I deserve an applause for that. Uh, and I know it's patronizing, but I still will take it. Uh, now, why do I do that? Why do I do that? Do I do it so I say, okay, well, I hope by picking up this laundry, it stirs my affections for my wife and it makes me love her more. No. I love her, and it makes it easier for me to do things that I know makes her happy. And it's not just with stuff as simple as that. I mean, I just, I like doing stuff for her. I just love her. I want to make her life easy. I don't know, I know that might sound weird, but I just do. I like fill her car up with gas. That might be small, but it's like, it's just something I like doing. And I, I just want her to, when she has to go to work, when she's going out, that she doesn't have to stress out about that. That's one thing that I can take. And I don't do it to go, well, I'm just a husband and I have to do these husband tasks. And here I am spending $28 on gas again. No, I love my wife. And because I love my wife, there are natural actions that come out of that. And it's the same thing, our relationship with God. When we abide in his love and when he begins to change our hearts and our hearts start, our heart's affections start stirring for him, it makes it natural for us to do the things 
that God is asking us to do. I'm called to work on my love for Jesus Christ, and that in turn affects my obedience, not to work on my obedience in order to love. I grow in my love so that it will straighten out my disobedience. So what do we do now? If we believe that Jesus is the true vine, if we believe that if he is the true vine, we need to expect pruning and that our position is in his presence. And if we believe that Jesus gives us the power to love, what do we do now? And this is the part that might be honestly difficult for some of you here. I tell our teachers, everyone from our babies all the way through our student ministries, that people learn one of three ways, by thinking, by feeling, and by doing. If you are someone who learns by doing, this talk will be a challenge for you. If I'm honest, like I said, my granddad taught me incredible, good, I think I have good work ethic. And when I hear about the fruits of the Spirit, there's part of me who wants to change that on my own. And so for those of you who are like, give me something to do, I'm just telling you right now, it's going to be a little bit different than you might think. So what do we do now? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to be two basic things. is to run towards things that grow your passion for Jesus and run away from things that steal your passion for Jesus. Don't just try to not do the bad things, but rather giving yourself over for a growing love for Jesus. So what does that look like? And here's what's different. That might look different for you. What stirs my passion for Jesus might look different for me than it does for you. I believe that for all of us, that should include listening to God by reading his word and talking to him. But where we do that, what time of the day we do that, that's, it's different. I have some friends who like going on long nature walks, and they connect with God there. For me, I just like getting to work maybe 30, 45 minutes early and just breaking away before I start my day. God meets me there. It stirs my heart's affections for Jesus. Spending time with my best friends stirs my heart's affections for Jesus. At the same time, I learn what steals my affection for Jesus. I think sin, that steals all of our affections for Jesus. But what else? There's certain things that aren't sinful. They're just not things that like stir my affections. So for me, it might not be this way for you. For me, Social media, like an extended period of time on social media, does not stir my, it robs my affections for Jesus. It makes me cynical. I find myself, maybe this isn't for you at all. I don't think, I'm not saying social media is evil. For me, what ends up happening, if I read it for too long, what I end up doing is I start reading articles over and over again that either believe what I believe or that strongly disagree just so that it can bring this weird indignation doesn't stir my affection. I've, I've realized that's not good for my heart. So for you, I want you to run away from the things that steal your passion for Jesus and run towards the things that, 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 that build your, that grow your passion for Jesus. I don't know what that looks like for you, but here's what I know. God wants to do something in your heart. He wants to change your heart in a way that it looks more like him, that it gives him honor. He wants to change your hate to love, your sorrow to joy, your chaos to peace, your agitation to patience, your harshness to kindness, 
your wickedness to goodness, your arrogance to gentleness, your inconsistency to faithfulness, and your greed to self-control. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray a very simple prayer that God would stir in our hearts a, a, a desire and a, an, a, an affection for our son Jesus. And then one way that we're going to do that is the same way that they did it at the table, that Jesus did with his disciples at the table, and they take communion. And I want us to remember when we eat the bread of Jesus' body that was broken for us, when we drink the juice, a reminder of his blood that was, spread, that was shed for us. And if you're at a point in your faith where, man, you haven't crossed that line of faith yet, when I say that Jesus is the true vine, and maybe you're at a point where, like, I just don't believe that yet. One, I'm glad you're here. And when that trade goes by, don't feel a need to take from it at all, and no one's going to think anything different. But use this time to really investigate, say, God, what is it that's holding me back from that? So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to have communion as a church, and then we're going to sing one last song. So you guys pray with me. Lord God, stir in our hearts an affection for your son, Jesus. Stir in our hearts a passion for your son, Jesus. For those who have walked in feeling a burden by following you and feeling like the, that it is heavy to follow you, may they leave here tonight knowing that your burden is light. God, work in our hearts. Change us from the inside out. And we know only you can do that. And we know we only have access to that because of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.